Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Before we get started, I just want to tell you that HelloFresh is a delicious meal service with endless options to make cooking at home simple, healthy, and enjoyable. We all love it, and we know you will too. Go to HelloFresh.com Sisters16 and use code SISTERS16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com Sisters16 and use code SISTERS16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts or get the link to America's number one meal kit in our show notes. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Joyce Vance. You've probably seen us in Sisters-in-Law merch at this point. We are all big fans of the hoodie, and we've been wearing our pins on TV and drinking water all day long out of our water bottles. Now it's your turn. You can get your own Sisters-in-Law merch. To order, go to politicon.com slash merch and get yourself a Sisters-in-Law t-shirt, hoodie, and much more. We appreciate your support for the podcast. Today we'll be discussing the seditious conspiracy indictment of Stuart Rhodes and his band of Oath Keepers, the Supreme Court's vaccine mandate decisions, and the odds that the 1-6 committee will subpoena House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we dig in, I need to get some advice from my sisters-in-law because there is snow in the forecast for Birmingham this weekend. It doesn't happen a whole lot. I'm really excited. I hope the weather gods are going to be good to us. But what do y'all do on snow days? It's been so long for me. I don't, I don't know what to do. So coming from Chicago, I get lots of snow days. And my favorite activity is actually watching Brisby play in the snow. <laughs> He loves to prance around and dive into it. He takes a ball and buries it and then digs it out. And then he buries it again and digs it out. And it's so much fun to watch him enjoy the snow while I stand inside watching. That's a great idea. I think both of our dogs, Bella, my German shepherd, and Fig, our boxer, would probably love doing that. Thank you, Jill. Yeah, I, I, I don't like snow. I think I may have mentioned that before. My favorite thing to do on a snow day is to look at it, uh, look at the beauty of the snow through a window while holding a nice warm beverage, hopefully uh, wearing fuzzy slippers. Um, I don't like being out in it. It's funny that you talk about Brisbee because my my late dog, Boogie, absolutely loved the snow. And that's the only time I enjoyed it was watching him play in it. But even that would last like five, ten minutes. And then I'd say, all right, let's go inside. It's cold. <laughs> it's too much. I, I grew up in cold weather regions, and I feel like I've put my time in. Now I live south of the Mason-Dixon line, and I'll be happy to never see it again. But somehow I always do. Well, Joyce, I love snow. 
Uh, I don't like driving in it, but I do love watching it come down. So like Kim, I do love sitting with a hot cup of something and reading a book. Uh, nothing as cozy as that. Um, but I also do like to get out in it. I, um, When my kids were young, I used to take them to this sledding hill and all the kids in town would be there. Uh, it was quite chaotic and I was relieved when they got old enough to take themselves there. Uh, but I often will go cross-country skiing on a day when there's enough snow, you know, right out right out my door and, you know, um, ski to the golf course. So I do like to get out in it, walk in it, shovel it. Uh, I think that's a lot of fun. But one thing you should do for sure, Joyce, is make sure it's a day where you do something fun and not just get caught up on errands. It's like a free day, a play day. So, you know, cook a new recipe or read a new book or, you know, undertake something. It is like a day to uh, unplug and do something that you're, where you're not accountable to anybody. You know, that's such good advice. My fingers really are crossed for for snow. I went to college in Maine, California girl in Maine, and that first time that it snowed, it was just magic, the way it frosted the trees and the ground was covered in it. So I'm eternally optimistic we'll get a good snow down here. It doesn't happen really often, but thank you all for the good advice, and, and Barb especially, I'll make sure I treat it like a special bonus vacation day, not a regular one. So now let's talk about the indictment that the DOJ released Thursday, charging Oath Keepers founder Elmer Stewart Rhodes III and 10 alleged members of the group, nine of whom had been previously charged, with seditious conspiracy. Some members of the group still face other charges as well. But I want to talk about seditious conspiracy and why this charge is so important. So, Barb, you're an expert on this. The last time a federal prosecutor brought seditious conspiracy charges, it was you. So tell us what the elements are and what you think about the government's decision to charge it here. Yeah, I did uh, bring a seditious conspiracy charge in 2010 against a militia group in Michigan, um, and um, we lost. They were uh, acquitted. The, the, the judge actually dismissed the case before it went to trial, not because of the charge per se, but because of the uh, she found that there was not sufficient evidence of a conspiracy. We can talk about that in a bit. But the elements of the charge really is the technical legal requirements are not all that stringent. It is that two or more people conspired or agreed. And then there are a lot of different ways to violate the statute, one of which, the one that we charged and the one that's charged here, is to oppose by force the authority of the United States in um, in its efforts to execute the law. And so uh, here, the Oath Keepers group is charged with using force to prevent the peaceful transfer of presidential power. So it seems very fitting here. I think, you know, one of the lessons learned um, since the case I brought in 2010, and I imagine there are those still at the Justice Department who I hope have learned this lesson, is that in 2010, we lived in very different times. And I remember at the time that the judge and the defense attorneys and the public were very skeptical of this idea of seditious conspiracy. It was something you don't hear much about. And I think the defendants were successful in portraying their clients as just a bunch of goofballs who like to blow stuff up in the woods and they're harmless. Like, come on, please give me a break. Like they're going to overthrow the government. Like they're going to start a civil war. Right. Um, you know, it doesn't mean they have to be successful as long as they want to try. And now that we know that there are networks of these militia groups all over the country who are like-minded and who have are connected by social media and can gather the way they did on the Capitol, I think we're a lot more aware of the very real risk that is posed by uh, a group like this, these anti-government extremists. And so I think the likelihood of this one succeeding are much greater than they were in mine. Um, the evidence in the indictment, 48 pages, looks very strong to me. Uh, you know, of course, the facts matter, and that'll play out later. But I think we're just in a different time. And I also think the fact that this attack occurred at the Capitol 
um, on the day they were certifying the election results, really magnifies um, the seriousness of this offense and, and does show that they really were trying to oppose by force the authority of the United States. And I also think, I mean, I think a, a lot of what we've seen so far um, are lower misdemeanor counts that are being brought against the hundreds of people that we've seen so far. So at least this feels, these charges feel a little more like they fit what we all saw with our eyes mm -hmm. happening in real time. So I think it's important for the public too, to watch this play out. So Jill, we've talked before about our shared frustration, I think, at the pace of the DOJ's public work on these cases, as opposed to what we've seen happening with the January 6th committee in Congress. How do you feel about where things stand now, given this new indictment with these new charges? I feel a whole lot better. I do think this is the start of a movement to hold higher-ups accountable. It's not the higher-up that everybody is hoping for, but it is a step toward showing a broad-based conspiracy, and it's, it really is a case where, as Barb was saying, the case that was dismissed um, against this militia group was sort of focused on, well, it was just speech. They can't really do this. And I think the reality of seeing it on TV and of being in this different place makes it so obvious that this is something that could happen, that was really planned and the indictment, which is a great read for everybody, uh, I think we should post it in our show notes so that people yeah, can see it them, themselves, really lays out the steps that they were taking. And this isn't that long. It, you know, this is a year and, a, what, a week or a year and a few days after the actual uh, January 6th incident. Um, and that's pretty fast for building a case of this magnitude. It is true it's something that happened in public. We all saw it happen. But you need to get more than just that. You need to get people who are going to testify, and you needed to get all of these text messages that were encrypted. And I think this is a good move, and I feel much better about the pace of things happening, recognizing that most of this has to stay silent because of grand jury secrecy requirements, which I fully support and uphold, as opposed to January 6th, which has no such uh, commitment and therefore can make public what it is discovering. So Joyce, paint us a bigger picture here. How does this fit in with the hundreds of defendants that we've already seen charged? And what might it mean for other people, including the former president and those in his orbit, and also the work of the January 6th committee. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously the, un the unanswered question here, right? How far up does this conspiracy go? Does it link to the folks at the Willard War Room? Does it reach into the Oval Office? You know, there's every reason to believe, given this indictment, that that's what DOJ is at work on. But I think that there's a possibility that January 6th doesn't turn out to be one big linear conspiracy where you can draw a straight line from the people who overran the Capitol straight up to Trump. It's possible that there were different groups with different kinds of plans. We see this seditious conspiracy here. I suspect that if the president and those around him do end up getting charged, it will have more to do with the use of the big lie and that mechanism to try to interfere with the election results 
culminating with January 6th when they realized that they were out of options. But we don't know, and I think we shouldn't try to get ahead of ourselves here. Jill makes this really good point that it takes a long time for these sorts of investigations to come together in the criminal sense. Because, you know, when you're trying to flip cooperating witnesses, that's not something that happens overnight. And a lot of these communications are still opaque to law enforcement. They don't have the technology to get into phones or to look at some of these um, uh, sites where the messages are scrambled. And so they have to take the time to convince people who are defendants to become cooperating witnesses. That's slow, but we see the payoff in this case where DOJ appears to have an extremely strong case. Um, but but let me just say, and this is something we've talked about before, given the notion that there could be more than one conspiracy here, that's why it's awfully perplexing that we don't see signs of a direct investigation aimed at Trump and those uh, who were close to him. So although I think Merrick Garland made some strong steps towards um, committing to a robust investigation— To Jill's point again of whether he's gone far enough, he's going to have to continue to prove that to us. We do need to see more. But ultimately, I think the good news here as we look ahead, DOJ has now finally staked the territory that this was an insurrection and that they believe that they can prove that in court. You know, that's a lot more difficult than whatever it is that people get on television and say, right? I mean, language can be careless in that sense. DOJ is not careless with its language. For DOJ to indict on these charges, they believe that they have evidence that's admissible and that will prove beyond a reasonable doubt that these defendants were involved in a seditious conspiracy. And and that, I think, is good progress. I also think that there's indication that, um, you know, there there could be more to come, too. Um, You know, one of the ties that we've seen, one of these 11 men, is a man named Roberto Menuda. Um, and Roberto Menuda was previously charged for entering the Capitol. Now he's been charged with this higher offense of seditious conspiracy. He is one of the people who was with Roger Stone on January 5th. And so right. he now faces 20 years in prison. Um, I can imagine his lawyer saying to him, the only way you can get out from under this is if you can cooperate and provide information. What did you discuss with Roger Stone? Just tell him all of that. And did you text with Roger Stone? Do you have any documents with Roger Stone Um, or others? And so that's the way that prosecutors methodically work their way up the chain is you, you know, you start low. And this is what Merrick Garland explained in his, in his speech. Um, You work, you start with a lower level people, you flip them and you work your way up the chain. And so I think that there is a possibility with even one of these defendants right here uh, in terms of cooperating to breach Trump's inner circle. And there's so many good questions around Roger Stone, right? There's the fact that he was there, that Oath Keepers were guarding him that week, but he makes the decision not to go to the Capitol and he doesn't even go to the rally. And that has always intrigued me. So, Barb, I think you're absolutely right. I think what's going on here is that they're going to try to flip these people against Stone and see who else they had conversations with. It's going to be very interesting. I want to add something about flipping witnesses because— In terms of timing, it's often said that Watergate happened so quickly, and that's used as a criticism of why it's taking so long this time. But really, the crime, the underlying, underlying crime, was a burglary in June of 72. And the indictment wasn't until March of 74. But that's because we had no evidence of a cover-up until the sentencing of the burglars 
and one of them broke in March of 73. So it took about a year from the time we had a witness to get to an indictment. So this is right on track with that speed. So I want people to stop saying, well, Watergate was so much faster. Uh, Watergate took a year from having a witness to get everything put into place. And so I think we're in good shape now. Yeah, and one thing that's very important to me, too, both uh, with the work of the January 6th committee and also what we're seeing uh, happening with the Justice Department, is getting to the bottom of who all these groups were that were involved that day and what they were doing. Because we know, again, from the FBI's assessment, not just this year, but for the past several years in recent memory, that the biggest threat uh to American is domestic terrorism. It is not international terrorism. It is the domestic terror threat, whether it is from groups who are uh, mostly white supremacist or groups who are anti-government. Um, and it seems that that certainly was an element uh, at play in January 6th. And I hope that the uh, investigations related to this indictment, as well as the work of the January 6th committee, gets to the bottom of that to keep us all safe and to make us aware of what that threat might be. You know, Joyce, it's interesting. I thought I had fallen off of Noom, the app we've been using, but I logged in again after a while and I realized that I had really without even thinking about it, been keeping to the the things that I'd learned from the app about what makes me eat what I do, what makes me get out and move the way that I do. And it's really had an impact in how, in the choices that I make about being healthy. How have you found Noom? The same thing here. I, I feel like Noom has really modified my behavior in some ways that have made me more healthy. I watch what I eat. I'm a little bit better about getting exercise. I still need to work on that. But, you know, bikini season is coming, y'all. And um, I am really about to get serious about Noom. So we'll see. Jill, what about you? I love Noom. And I agree with what both you and Kim have said. It has really permeated my very soul. And I instinctively think about what I'm eating and why I'm eating much more than I ever did. And the new map is so easy to use. It's a really powerful tool that shows you how to understand your cravings and build new habits to reach your goals using the latest science. Well, I haven't worn a bikini since 1972, and I don't <laughs> plan to start now. <laughs> Girl, you were eight in 1972. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and I haven't worn a bikini since. Um, but I, I agree with all of you. I think that Noom has been uh, really life-altering for me in terms of making sure I'm thinking carefully about what I'm eating and just getting up and moving more. Uh, you know, tracking your steps, I know sounds uh, sort of... Uh, uh, oppressive, but I notice on the days when I'm just working at home versus when I'm going into the law school or something, I walk so many more steps. And so I know I've been much more mindful about going for a walk around the block or if I go somewhere, parking the car farther away so that I have to walk to get there. So, you know, Noom shows you how to pursue the goals you set for yourself and make sure you reach them, focusing on motivation and improvement based on psychology, not diet teas and airbrushed expectations. No food is off limits. It's about finding your balance. That's the key to progress. And if you're like us, you're busy. So I love that Noom only requires 10 minutes a day. Over 75% of Noomers end up finishing the program 
and more than 60% of users lose 5% or more of body weight in 16 weeks, and 60% of engaged users keep the weight off for a year or more. With Noom, you can get empowered and stay on track. So start building better habits for healthier long-term results. Sign up for your trial and get psychology-based support and motivation to reach your goals at noom.com slash sistersinlaw. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash sistersinlaw to sign up for your free trial. Last week, we talked about the arguments we heard in the Supreme Court about the two different federal agency vaccination mandates. This week, we can talk about the decisions in those cases. We correctly predicted the outcome of both based on the justices' reactions during the arguments. The opinion was announced two days ago, and as we predicted, the OSHA vaccination or test plus mask mandate, which would have applied to employers with 100 or more employees, was struck down, but the mandate requiring healthcare workers at facilities receiving federal funding uh, will have to be vaccinated in order to protect the workers and vulnerable residents. So congratulations, sisters-in-law, for being correct in your predictions. Uh, the vote in the employer mandate case was six to three with liberal justices in dissent. And the vote in the healthcare case was five, four with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh joining the liberals to form the majority. The result unfortunately does block a key element of White House plans to address the pandemic as the coronavirus cases are skyrocketing uh, because of the Omicron variant. So let's look at the details and whether this is the final word on the subject. Barb, let's start with you. In both the employer and healthcare worker cases, the justices said the question was whether Congress had authorized the executive branch to tape to take the actions the Biden administration took to address the health care crisis. According to Jimmy Kimmel, the conservative majority ruled that Biden's mandate went too far and our individual rights to get COVID from the worst person at work has been preserved. How would you explain the majority opinion in both uh, cases and their rationale for the distinction in outcome? So, we have two different agencies at work here. One is OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and the other is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And each of those organizations, those executive branch agencies, have promulgated rules to um, address people under their care. So with regard to CMS, they said anybody who works in a facility funded by Medicare or Medicaid must get vaccinated because we have a duty under our statutes to uh, protect the well-being of all of the patients under our care. Uh, OSHA has a rule that says that uh, OSHA must uh, protect employees from hazards uh, and and may pr- uh, create rules that protect workers from workplace hazards. And so they then interpreted each of those different languages. And so that's the reason for the different result. I think, um, as you said, Jill, we, we, we kind of, the justices kind of telegraphed where they stood on these things. They seemed more uh, uh, inclined to support the Medicare and Medicaid rules that pertain to healthcare workers. It's a specialized field. They're dealing with patients and it's about protecting the patients, not so much about the workers. What the majority said with regard to the OSHA case is, um, that this rule goes beyond the scope of OSHA's powers because the COVID 
virus is not unique to the workplace. It is a hazard that exists in the world. And there's nothing special about the workplace about it that gives OSHA the power to regulate it. Now, you know, that's one of the reasons. I think this is like why people hate lawyers. This seems like <laughs> such a made up uh, distinction because they they do have rules that allow uh, OSHA to protect against loud noises, for example, in the workplace. Well, we have loud noises in the rest of the world and they allow OSHA to have rules that uh, provide for clean drinking water in the workplace. We have drink, clean drinking water in the rest of the world and hazards of drinking water in the rest of the world. So I don't know what it is about this that makes it different from those other scenarios. And I think it, you know, it makes the other justice it was want to bang their head against the table. What I think is really going on here is this hostility to the so-called administrative state. Justice Gorsuch says in his concurring opinion that this is all about not what the policy is, but who gets to decide. And he wants to talk about, you know, states get to do this, but not the federal government. And so I think this is an effort to uh, defang uh, the administrative state and put the federal government in its place and reserve for states the power to enact these kinds of laws. And in fact, the Supreme Court has upheld states' abilities to mandate vaccines. The last thing I'll say is, throughout the opinion, they call it a, a vaccine uh, mandate, when in fact, there is also the option to test and mask besides getting a vaccine. And so I think it's a little um, um, misleading to call this a vaccine mandate. It's a vaccine or test mandate. Gee, Barb, I think that sounds like sour grapes. I can't believe that you're picking on <laughs> Justice Gorsuch. I mean, I would much rather have a man who can't bother to wear a mask to protect his colleagues making decisions about my health than the experts at OSHA. I, I don't see why you're alarmed by this. Now, between him and Joe Rogan. <laughs> I, I think, Barb, when you talked about it being the justices telegraphed the opinion that we correctly predicted the biggest telegraphing was his not wearing a mask to the argument and forcing two of his colleagues, uh, Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Breyer, to not be in the courtroom because of his failure. He sits right next to the two of them. And that certainly sent to me, I know how he's going to decide on this, while everybody else in the courtroom had to wear a KN95 mask. Uh, but anyway, Joyce, let's let's... Talk about the um, recently mentioned justices and the the dissents that they issued. Because, but I want to point out that in criticizing the decision barring enforcement of the mandate for large employers, Stephen Colbert said, "What the hell, Supremes? What what do you know about large employers? You're a small business with nine workers whose dress code is ankle length hefty bag." But he would certainly have approved of the language of the dissent in the decision. Can you elaborate on what the dissenters said in that case and whether the majority opinion blocking enforcement of the large employer mandate is the final word on the subject? Yes, yeah, so I think I'll focus, Jill, on, on the OSHA case because this is where the dissent is more interesting to me. We've got the predictable dissenters, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, and I think the language is particularly important for our listeners to hear. The dissent says in part, and then there is this court. Its members are elected by and accountable to no one. And we lack the background, competence, and expertise to assess workplace health and safety issues. When we are wise, we know enough to defer on matters like this one. When we are wise, we know not to displace the judgment of experts. Today, 
we are not wise. I think that language is going to have some legs because this is not the kind of opinion that the court renders and we talk about on television for a couple of days, and then it just fades off into the ether for legal scholars to debate. I mean, this is a case that will have a concrete impact on all of our lives as we continue to live through the Omicron wave. And part of your question, Jill, was about whether this would be permanent. And of course, this is not technically a permanent decision in this case. This, uh, these cases came up to the court on its emergency docket. They decided to, to brief and hear it here. Litigation can continue in the lower courts, but I think it's very unlikely that this decision gets displaced for the reasons that Barb identifies. It's because the decision in this case has a lot less to do with the OSHA mandates and even with the CMS mandates and more to do with the fact that this newly conservative majority on the court is dedicating to dismantling what they have called dismissively at times the nanny state, but an ability in the federal government to protect workers. And something that really concerns me about this is the court obviously has acknowledged that states have the ability to issue vaccine mandates. And if you live in a state that has elected leadership that's inclined to protect you, you may well have protections. But if you live in a state uh, like Alabama, let's say, where people in leadership are less inclined to protect you, many of those states also lack unionization. And so frontline workers, workers who have less bargaining power, people who aren't in white-collar jobs, they're the people who come become the most vulnerable and who this court has, has set up for vulnerability, which is, of course, horribly and painfully ironic in light of what we discussed last week and have touched on today, the fact that the court itself has been insulated and protected and cocooned, except for Justice Gorsuch's um, you know, lack of decency. But in large part, they haven't had to deal with problems that they have now inflicted on many hardworking Americans. So, look, this term— it looks to me like the court is going to tell women that they have to carry pregnancies to term, but it won't protect their children after they're born. And I think that that's just a disgrace. So well said, Joyce. And I think we can add besides Alabama, Arizona, and Florida to the list of states that will not protect their citizens. Uh, the federal government today did try to, uh, to warn Arizona that it might claw back um, some of its uh, COVID relief money if they keep interfering with mask wearing. Um, but Kim, based on what Joyce just said, what can Biden do now that he's been blocked from protecting us through this particular mandate? Does he have some choices? What else can he do? Yeah, so that's an important question. I want to get to that. Just uh, I was not in the courtroom uh, for these arguments, but I just want to say, based on uh, my reporting, uh, just so that we are clear, yeah, Gorsuch did not wear a mask into the to the courtroom. Also, um, Alito and Thomas came in in a mask but took them off for the Ooh. argument. So I don't I don't want to give the idea that Gorsuch was alone in his unmaskedness. Um, so you know, there is that. That makes it um, worse. But yes. <laughs> But what does the president do? Well, the president's options, certainly when it comes to issuing the type of mandate he did uh, or tried to do under OSHA, is very limited. You are, uh, Joyce is right that there is uh, the ability of states to impose this mandate. One reason is because there's Supreme Court precedent for that out of uh, my adopted home state of Massachusetts, which goes back uh, a 
a, a century, which gives clear uh, authority by states to issue these kinds of mandates that go back to the flu uh, of 1918. I know someone else says it's from a different year. Um, and and other things, you know, polio vaccines, other things that are, have been mandated over time that's done at a state level. We did see Joe Biden this week make a speech and say to employers, look, impose these mandates like they work. They're good. If you can, it's still something that you can do. And he is right, by and large, with some exceptions, which I'll get to, employers are f- perfectly free uh, to impose mandates that say, hey, if you're going to come into this workplace, you need to either have a vaccine or get tested, um, wear a mask or things that are similar to this. The exceptions are where the employment is governed by some other agreement, say a collective bargaining agreement or something. And of course, that would govern. The other exception would be if states actually prohibit vaccine mandates. And there are a handful of states that have either prohibited vaccine mandates altogether at the employment level or severely restricted the abilities of employers to do that. Florida comes to mind. Uh, Also Tennessee, Idaho, Alabama. Um, And in those cases, it is much more difficult for employers to go ahead and and put these in. But I'm hoping that other employers do. One thing that we have learned, there was a lot of scare, uh, a lot of um, fear-mongering that these mandates would cause workforces just to up and leave and they would be protecting their own rights. A Kaiser poll found that fewer than 5% of employers, employees uh, left their jobs because of vaccine mandates. There was a lot of talk, a lot of huffing and puffing. And when the mandates went into effect, most people just got the vaccine or adhered to the testing requirements and showed up for their job. So we know that that isn't um, the problem here. And I think that the mandate that Biden put into place gave a lot of employers who wanted this mandate, who wanted to be able to protect their employees, some cover in order to do that. So I hope they continue um, to do that to the extent that they can, but you're right. It it really is up to the state and local law at this point. But I think that that gives a lot of leeway to most states right now to continue to do that. Just to follow up on what you said, Kim, um, I think there may be employers of 100 or more who would have actually preferred to have had this mandate uh, affirmed because it would take the pressure off them to take the action Uh, And yes, they may fear losing employees if they impose the mandate on their own. But of course, if it's government mandated, they don't have a choice. And they're now worried about losing customers, for example. Uh, I know health clubs are losing people because people aren't wearing masks. Um, And the um, United Airlines is a great example of the success of the vaccine mandate in terms of their being able to continue to provide service without having people sick and dying. They were losing one person, I think it was a week before the vaccine mandate that they imposed. Um, and now they don't. So what, what do we think about the possibility that they would have liked it instead of feeling like it was a bad thing? You know, I suspect that in some ways this issue becomes a marker for regional politics. And as you said, um, employers would have appreciated the cover of the federal government requiring them 
to do this. But in places where people tend to be more liberal, employers may be able to impose this. In Alabama, I've spoken with general counsels and other folks at some of our um, businesses here, and they think it's difficult for them as a business to impose those sort of requirements, both because of how their employees may react and how their um, customers may react as well, which is, to me, counterintuitive and hard to believe. My, you know, where I am at this point is I won't even go into a, a business if people aren't masked. And I'm far more comfortable going to places like my local coffee shop and bakery where I know everybody is vaccinated. But, y'all, there are a lot of people out there who are in a very different space. And so this is bad news, I think, in parts of the country. Jenny Kane. Now, there's a brand. I've often thought of them as apparel, but I think they're into room decor these days. Joyce, what do you know about Jenny Kane? You know, they are, and I've been paying a lot of attention lately because I'm getting ready to redo two bedrooms and a bathroom upstairs in our house. So I've been looking at furniture. They have really clean lines. I love the auto bench and chair in this really beautiful ivory wool boucle. It's a very clean and a simple look, but they also have a lot of just fabulous little um, decorative pieces. They have these sculptural pieces that hang vertically on your wall and nesting baskets. I'm, I'm pretty excited about getting their, their California look in my house here. I'm Kim, sorry, what did you say? Boucle? Is that boucle. like a clump of flowers? It's a boucle. boucle. It's like a fabric, like a textured yeah. fabric. Uh, Kim, what do you think about Jane? <laughs> Boucle is amazing. It's this wonderful, like textured fabric, uh, sort of a knit, as Joyce said. And and it's one of the things that I've been looking at, too. You know, um, my husband and I have been being very um, considered about the pieces that we pick together as we uh, build our home that matches both of our aesthetics, right? We have different aesthetics, but there are pieces that match us both. And certainly Jenny Kane's pieces do that. The, the California-inspired classic looks are good for any room or mood. One thing I like about them is that they're grounded in natural textures and inviting neutrals that give uh, all the pieces something really to love. You know, I have really bright, as y'all know, uh, accents in my home. Greg has more neutral ones, and Jenny Kane really brings them together. And right now, I really like the Brentwood Boucle chair. It's a handcrafted accent chair that everyone seems to be obsessed with right now. And it's perfect for the bedroom, the living room, or den, or Zoom room. And it adds interest and effortless style to any room and is available in ivory, ivory wool boucle, which is my favorite, and natural boucle. You'll love it too. I am really obsessed with the Brentwood chair and also with the ottoman that comes with it and can't wait to see how it's going to look in my house. So you, cute. It's, it's great, isn't it? You too can create the space you'll never want to leave at JennyKane.com. Tell your employer you are not coming back to work. You've got Jenny Kane. And you can get 15% off your first order when you use code SISTERS at checkout. That's 15% off your first order, J-E-N-N-I. K-A-Y-N-E dot com. When you use the promo code SISTERS, that's how you get the 15% off, and you can look for the link in our show notes. This week, the January 6th committee sent a letter to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy 
asking for his cooperation in their investigation. This is a pretty extraordinary development for Congress to seek information from one of its own. First, Kim, let me ask you, what are the topics that the committee wants to ask McCarthy about? What makes them think that he has any information of value? Well, what could possibly make them think that? Perhaps it was the fact that he went on just about every news outlet that he could telling people that he had the relevant facts. (laughs) So... uh, I I really love the way that uh, Chairman Thompson wrote this letter because it essentially says, oh, based on all these news uh, appearances you made and these statements that you made in media organizations, it's clear that you talked to the president on January 6th. You talked to the president before January 6th. And uh, you even mentioned that you thought that whatever plan that may have been being developed was, quote, doomed to fail. And then you talked to the president again after January 6th. You even went to Mar-a-Lago. So we would like to know some things that you said to and with the president. And one thing that is really brilliant about this is that we've talked a lot about privileges. And in this case, to whatever extent he may have been able to assert some sort of privilege, which I think was limited limited to none, he certainly will have been, except for any com- conversation he had with his own lawyer, not with the president's lawyers, but with his own lawyer. He can't assert that if he's been talking about what he was saying (laughs) for the last, you know, year. And so I think it's very difficult for him to make a case to avoid this. I think that's why he was trying to change the subject all week when reporters asked him about it. But he's certainly a central figure in what happened that day. And this is a this is a big moment, but it is important that the committee talk to him. Yeah, he is like the poster boy for why lawyers say to their clients, don't talk about it publicly because it can really come back to bite you. And, you know, there's also this argument that he has used, you know, just tips to our listeners, um, you know, when to look for the weak argument. We talked about straw man arguments last week. Here's another one. Um, I've already provided you with a lot of information, so you you shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to provide any more. Like, no, you don't get to say how much is enough. I said it all in the press. Yeah, I said it all in the press. So, okay, so that is, you know, not to an official governmental body. And as we know, um, there are those in politics who think it's no problem to lie in the press. But if you lie to Congress, that's a crime. So that matters. And the other thing is, Congress doesn't just want to know what you said, Kevin McCarthy. They want to know how Trump responded and right. you haven't said anything about that. That's what we really want to know. So um, how, to, how to spot the, um, the weak arguments. Um, well, let me move on and ask Jill. Um, so far, the committee has asked for voluntary cooperation, but McCarthy has said he won't provide it. So what are the committee's options now uh, that McCarthy's refused that request? Um, they had to know when they issued that letter that refusal was a strong possibility. So what do you think is the strategy here? Will they issue a subpoena to one of their own? And why is that a big deal? Um, And will it be effective or can he just stall like all the others? Well, there's a lot of questions in there. And yes, of course he can stall. And yes, he probably will stall. That seems to be basically the Donald Trump way of doing business is you just keep stalling and stalling and stalling. And there is um, a time frame here where Congress's power will evaporate unless the Democrats retain control. If they lose control, the end of this investigation is immediate. So what can they do? They can use their inherent power without going any further. They don't have to make any kind of referral. They would have to issue a subpoena, 
And everybody keeps saying it's unusual. It is unusual because we don't usually have criminals who are doing things that, or, or people who are witnesses to crimes in Congress where they need to come in and testify. So that's why it's unusual. But it is the next logical step is to have a subpoena. There's no question, as Kim just laid out, what information he has and why it's relevant. So a subpoena seems like the logical next step. And I, for one, do not see how anyone can argue that there is any privilege granted to McCarthy to avoid answering that subpoena. If the President of the United States, that is Richard Nixon, could be subpoenaed, if Bill Clinton could be subpoenaed, if Vice President Agnew could be indicted, then why can't a member of Congress be subpoenaed? It, there's just no reason why a subpoena is not valid. Um, there's nothing here that makes me feel like they shouldn't do the subpoena and that they shouldn't immediately enforce the subpoena either through their inherent power or through a criminal referral. But I, I think... I personally would like to see them act faster than having a referral and let them use their inherent power to hold him in contempt. So that's what I think they should be doing. Yeah, and I wonder what that would look like. Like, do they just go lock him up if he says no? Well, like, remember, William Barr had the old joke about, oh, hey, Nancy Pelosi, where are your handcuffs? Right. Well, they, you know, there is a rule where the sergeant-at-arms can be sent out to arrest <laughs> someone. Um, there used to be a jail cell in Congress. It doesn't exist anymore, so they would have to make arrangements to... Uh, they could put him in Kim's bunker. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think Ted Lieu has got legislation pending um, that would essentially beef up that inherent contempt power. It seems like it would be tough to use it right now without much groundwork laid. I don't think we're going to see that. But Jill, what do you think about maybe using some of the House ethics proceedings to, you know, to say that a member who fails to comply mm. with the subpoena should be censured or have other action taken against them because of that? I think that would be a great strategy and certainly, you know, effective in one way, but not effective in one, it doesn't compel them to testify. Two, it doesn't impose, you know, what would the sanction be that goes with that? Would he be removed from committees? Would he be barred from being the leader or the, imagine, he's the one who wants to be the Speaker of the House if the Republicans take control. Um, so having that on his head as, you know, having been found guilty of an ethics violation, it's it's good. I think it's a good, good method. Um, I I think they have to do something. They cannot let this pass. He has very important information, as he has bragged to everybody in the press. Agreed. So let us go after him for sure. Well, we were talking about privileges. Kim wave raised the uh, the very good point of waiver. But Joyce, what do you think? Um, does McCarthy have any legal basis to refuse to testify if he were to receive a subpoena? You know, the speech or debate clause uh, or executive privilege or Fifth Amendment uh, does he have any legal basis to refuse to testify? You know, whether or not the privileges apply, I think we'll likely see him try to assert one or more of them, right? I mean, the delay game is what's going on here. And I'm sure that part of his strategy would be to try to push this off past the midterms in hopes that Democrats will lose the majority at the midterm. And then he can ride off into the sunset with the glory of being the speaker and never having to testify or, or go through the 11-hour process that Hillary Clinton sat through. 
I think it's worth spending a little bit of time talking about speech and debate clause privilege. That's maybe the one place he might be able to get a little bit of traction. I think Kim is dead on the money. He's, he's talked enough in the press that the Fifth Amendment privilege— um, you know, he could certainly try to assert that, but lawyer-client isn't going to work very well for him here. But here's what the Speech and Debate Clause um, says in Article One, Section 6 of the Constitution. For any speech or debate in either house, members of Congress shall not be questioned in any other place. And the goal of that clause is to protect the independence and integrity of the legislative branch from interference by the executive or judicial branches. So this is a little bit different than the scenario where Congress might try to bring in a Hillary Clinton or a Bill Clinton or anybody else in the executive branch. This is this conversation about the, the privilege that um, legislative branch members are owed. And the weird part of this is, how does that play out when you're talking about members of the legislative branch who are being subpoenaed to testify in front of their own body? So the privilege is typically construed very broadly. It includes acts that are off the floor. It's just not clear how far it goes. It's certainly not immunity from committing a crime. We see members of Congress who get prosecuted. So it's not some sort of a shield. The question is, can the, the committee force McCarthy to testify? And I think the short answer is, we don't know for sure, but they seem serious about trying. So um, one of the things that I think plays against McCarthy's use of the privilege is how extensively he's spoken in the press and just the hypocrisy of being willing to talk about this stuff in public, but then clamming up and saying he won't do it for the committee to try to protect the body that he serves in. And it's fascinating that he's repeatedly said that Trump bore some of the accountability for January 6th until he went to Mar-a-Lago on January 29th and met with Trump, and then he abruptly changed his story. And mm -hmm. I don't know, but that certainly looks to me like there could be some obstruction of justice involved. It certainly raises enough of a red flag that I think it's worth some investigation. If DOJ wanted to look at it, I think that they would be entitled to. The committee may well have some legitimate interest into seeing if its proceedings uh, are, are being interfered with. So I think, you know, this is the, the way this all plays out. I, I think we're going to have to wait and see. But at a minimum, if McCarthy doesn't testify until his own story, the January 6th committee will use everything that he said previously to tell his story for him. So that's a real downside that he faces here if he declines to testify. They'll tell his story through his own words, and he won't have a chance to be the one who sort of cabins it. And of course, there are a lot of other people who are cooperating with the committee. So the committee will tell more of McCarthy's story through, through what they've heard from those people. You know, um, the common wisdom today is that the Republican Party has no shame when it comes to Trump. But I wonder if voters might not feel differently when they're able to hear what McCarthy himself said, to hear what others say. And in these public hearings that we're heading towards, McCarthy may decide not to testify. He may fight it in court and delay it for long enough that we don't hear from him under oath. But ultimately, that may not help him out very much. I, would just, I just wanted to add to what Joyce just said or comment that politically hypocrisy, which is very visible here, doesn't matter anymore in the GOP. 
Um, but I want to stress in terms of the speech and debate clause, it's you can't be called to answer outside of Congress for your remarks. And this is answering in Congress. So I just don't think that that is a bar to his being called before Congress to answer. I think that's right, Jill. Logically, that has to be the answer. But the problem is his ability to delay things yes. by going to court. And I worry that the courts aren't going to be willing to get into a squabble between, you know, they'll see this as a political dispute that they should stay out of. And what happens if DOJ is asked to enforce the subpoena? Boy, DOJ would certainly be on the horns of a dilemma deciding whether or not they would prosecute McCarthy in this setting. I think one of the things that you said that's so important, Joyce, is that they've got to keep trying. I think part of the game is just wearing people down. Um, you know, we're, we're so exhausted, we're tired. Every time we serve a subpoena, they go through this whole list of, you know, pretextual uh, privileges that don't exist. And ultimately, they lose and they get the testimony. But if they get, you know, if they can drag it out past the midterm clock, then they'll consider that a victory. But I think by keeping the pressure on, the committee has already talked to something like 400 people. Um, many of these people who are not household names do have information that is is useful. And so as long as they just keep, keep pounding away, pounding away, pounding away, and not letting um, these obstructors uh, discourage them in their efforts. Um, I think that that's what they need to keep doing. And, you know, maybe they'll get there, maybe they won't, but uh, they have a duty to keep trying. But just one last point too, and this is the point of the column that I wrote this week that's in the show notes. You can't let the obstruction win. You can't let the obstructors win because that abdicates a role of Congress and its investigatory authority. We saw an entire administration use obstruction as normalized obstruction, as just normal politics. If that happens, I, I, I fear that because of that, we have already lost the power of impeachment. I'm not sure that Congress has the impeachment power anymore, right? Because obstruction thwarted it twice. So I think in this case, yes, it is unusual. It breaks norms to subpoena uh, the leader of the opposing party in Congress. You have to do it because if you don't use that, those congressional powers, you put them in peril of being lost. And I don't think that we are in a place, particularly when democracy is in peril, for that to happen. Kim, I think that's a really smart argument, and I'm glad you mentioned your column. I hope everybody will read it this week, because ultimately, this is a point where democracy is hanging in the balance. And a lot of people have said, oh, we shouldn't do things that are unusual. We shouldn't subpoena congressmen, or we shouldn't you know, take steps to work around the filibuster. But we're at that decision point where, yes, we have to be careful. We shouldn't take steps that will ultimately end up impairing democratic institutions, Making sure that Congress has the power to continue to investigate and, as you say, impeach in the face of obstruction, that feels pretty core to me. And I'm glad we're seeing this committee, which appears to be hard charging, seeming to be conscious of that. Jill, I bet you have the same issue that I have, which is that as much time as we spend putting on makeup for TV, we spend a lot of time taking it off. <laughs> and I'm in love with Athena's face wipes. They're the best thing that I've found for getting all that makeup off my face. I keep them stashed all over their house. They're fantastic. How about you? Absolutely agree with you. They are terrific. And they smell nicely and they do the job effectively. But the thing that they're really fabulous is their razors. And 
all of my friends are now hooked on this as well because this is a razor that makes shaving easy and leaves you moisturized, super smooth, and bump-free. And the Athena Club razor is hands down the best. It's designed with built-in skin guards to help prevent razor burn while being gentle on curves and is surrounded by a water-activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid, the holy grail for skincare. The best part is the razor kit is only $9 and comes with two blade heads, a magnetic hook for shower storage, and your choice of six different handle colors, even unique black and white razors. My favorite color is the one with the white showing a lot. Yeah, I have the lavender, and I, too, think it's great. I'm clumsy, Jill, so all of those built-in guards to help protect me from (laughs) myself are so necessary. Uh, And plus, you never have to worry about running out of refills or being stuck with dull, overused razors. You can choose how often replacement blades are sent to you with free shipping, and that means fresh, ready-to-use razors always arriving right when you need them. Also, you have to try their cloud shave foam. I really do love that too. I hadn't used foam in so long, but it's such a premium experience to nourish your skin while shaving and also keep you from making clumsy mistakes on yourself <laughs> like I always do. It's really great. I, and I have to say my husband loves the foam shave cream. It is really nice. Mm. Um, See, I don't share mine. Oh, well... <laughs> I'm married a lot longer, and maybe that's why I'm married so long, because I'm willing to share. TMI, TMI, TMI. Come on, come on. Show your skin you care with the Athena Club Razor Kit. Sign up today, and you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code SISTERS. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-C-L-U-B.com. And use promo code SISTERS for 20% off or look for the link in our show notes. Every week we answer questions from our listeners, and it's one of our favorite parts of the show. Y'all make us think, sometimes you make us do research, but we end up learning as much as I hope you learn from the answers to these questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week. We'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question this week comes from Logan in Austin. He asks, Sirhan Sirhan just got his parole denied. Was that the right call? Kim, what do you think? Yeah, in my opinion, I think it absolutely was. Look, I think that clemency is a crucial, very, very important part of criminal justice, uh, the justice part of criminal justice. And I do believe giving people, particularly people who have been rehabilitated, uh, a chance to reenter society um, is crucially important. But I think that there are some circumstances, including an assassination that was not just aimed at the the target, um, uh, the physical target of one's gun, but one that was meant to terrorize a nation in the way that the assassination uh, of Robert Kennedy was, is something different. And I think that uh, in this case, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, was 
every bit in his right and made a sound decision in deciding to deny that. I know a lot of people who I know whose opinion I respect say, look, his his sentence was life with the possibility of parole. That was what was given. And that was and that was a sentence and that was correct. But there are a lot of decisions. A parole board uh, voted uh, in favor of his release, but there is another level, which is the governor who can make the decision based on what the impact to society was by this and what it would be by his release. And I do believe, in my opinion, that it was the right thing here. I think in certain circumstances to take that stand does not take away the power, the important power of clemency uh, and the role that that should play overall in the criminal justice system. Well, Barb, your state has been in the news this week. There's been stories Rachel Maddow and others have been doing about slates of electors that were, in essence, forged in an effort to submit fake slates of electors that certified state votes for Trump instead of the actual winner, Joe Biden. Melissa asked us a question about this. She said, what kind of punishment could be leveled against the people who used forgery to certify state results? Is this a state offense or a federal offense? Yeah, this is super interesting. Um, our state attorney general, Dana Nessel, has said she's referred this to the, uni- the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of Michigan, which is where our state capital, Lansing, is located, um, for looking at federal charges. She has said that she's also exploring potential state charges for forgery. So I don't know much about that. But on the federal side, I would imagine there are a couple possibilities. One would be a conspiracy to defraud the United States. Uh, you know, in the uh, administration of its uh, election process, I think that would require evidence of intent to defraud. And so you would have to do some investigation to see if that's what happened here. I could imagine the defendants maybe had a couple of different possible goals. One could have been, um, we were just casting our provisional ballot in December. We believed that the election was still up in the air that uh, there were serious concerns about fraud, and we didn't want this deadline to go go by and then lose out just because we had failed to submit our certificate of electors. So they showed up in Lansing, they signed the document, and they sent it in. If that's the case, then I think, I'm not sure they would say there's an intent to defraud. If, on the other hand, there was an intent to create chaos um, or, uh, you know, suggest to the archivist the, the, of the National Archives is the person who receives this. Um, just, you know, a lot of chaos. They don't know which one is the valid one. You know, they know Michigan has been called by the media as uh, going for Biden, but that doesn't count for anything. It's the slate of electors that counts. So there could be, and I think one thing that plays into that is that Michigan isn't the only state. There are five states that have uh, submitted the identical certification just signed by the electors of that state. And so that suggests a coordinated approach that maybe there's someone above all of these actors who was saying, you know, we've drafted it, here's the document, sign this thing, send it in, and that's what we're doing. So I think it merits at least an investigation there. And I think even if you can't prove an intent to defraud, I think one other charge, Joyce, is our good old bread and butter, 1001. Um, Absolutely, right. uh, It's the false statements charge. And most often you see that charge when someone is interviewed by a federal agent and lies about, you know, that they didn't commit the crime or something like that. But there's also provision there that makes it a crime to submit a false 
uh, document or a document with false information to the government. Um, like all false statements, it requires that you know that the statement is false. So again, if somehow they were deluded into believing that Donald Trump had actually won, maybe you can't prove that they knew the statement was false, that they were certifying him the winner. You also have to show materiality. And that is that the false statement had a tendency to influence a matter under consideration by the government body that received it. And I suppose one could argue that, well, of course, the government knew that Biden won Michigan. And so it couldn't possibly have any influence. And in fact, the archivist just mailed it right back to the secretary of state and said, look what we got. You might want to look into this. This is kind of weird. Um, and so they weren't fooled at all. But being actually fooled is not a requirement, only if it has a tendency to uh, materially affect the matter under consideration. And so I think for both of those reasons, it merits further investigation. I don't know if it will result in charges, but at least it does suggest, again, a coordinated effort across this nation to undermine the results of the election. And I think referring it federally is a wise choice by Attorney General Nessel because it can now get rolled into the January 6th investigation and the other tentacles of it. You know, it is such a fascinating issue, Barb. And as you look at it, you you really have to wonder. I had seen some indication that these documents were sent also to Congress. And since there's been this whole PowerPoint coup with the notion that Vice President Pence would go in and refuse to accept slates and offer alternative slates or throw things back to states, whether or not that materiality issue that you raise in the thousand and one false statement counts, I, I suspect that it, as you say, bears further investigation. And it might even pan out. And it would be interesting to see what these state folks, which included Republican committee members, what information they might be able to provide about who they were talking with if they decided to become cooperating witnesses, not defendants. It's pretty interesting. It's very interesting. And it's interesting because the people who ran as electors for the Republicans in those states that are now forged documents, some of them wouldn't sign the document because they knew it was false. So they just substituted random names for the people who would have otherwise been elected as electors had Trump actually won those states. It's a really devious plan. And if you read the uh, instructions that are intended for the opening of the election results by the vice president of the United States before a joint session of Congress, he would have had to open both of those. They would have been submitted, and that would have been the grounds for the chaos and confusion and the possible delay of the vote, as was part of the Trump plan. So it is a very interesting and terrifying thing that has happened, and I'm glad it was discovered. Our last question is, is really two similar questions that come from Donna and Kathleen. And they, they ask a question about people with health conditions that impact voting. The question is, could the states that are making it harder to vote be sued over access to voting due to unnecessarily long lines? Can the DOJ do anything about suppression? And, and that's something that I'll at least start with, because there's a law called the Americans with Disabilities Act 
that DOJ has used to protect voters with health conditions. DOJ has, during the Biden administration, filed suit, and I'm, I'm not sure which state it is. So uh, I'm familiar with the lawsuit itself, which essentially says you can't make it difficult for people who have specific health conditions to vote because of those health conditions. You have to find a way of accommodating them. When I was the U.S. attorney in Birmingham, we learned that in, in the county that Birmingham's in, Jefferson County, we had a lot of polling places that were inaccessible for people who had challenges uh, with getting around, and especially for people in wheelchairs. In some places, they had to enter courthouses where the security barriers were too narrow to accommodate their wheelchairs. So we entered into an arrangement, into a settlement with the county. As soon as we approached the county probate judge about the problem, he realized he did not want to be sued because the Americans with Disabilities Act clearly made what they were doing uh, unconstitutional. And so we entered into a consent decree with them where all of the polling places were either modified or some workaround was come up with so people could vote. I suspect we're going to see DOJ be very aggressive about this as we get closer to the midterm elections. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, Jill Wine-Banks, and me, Joyce Vance. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them at us for next week's show using the hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy some of our fun swag. You'll be happy to have it. This week's sponsors are Noom, Jenny Kane, Athena Club, and HelloFresh. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them. They really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, Follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. People, people really listen. Someone sent me um, the Gwen Eiffel stamps that they had oh, left over because God. I had mentioned that I love the Gwen Eiffel stamps. Oh, that's so I mean, sweet. That's, I mean, they listen to every detail. It's quite amazing. They really do. Yeah. They pay a lot of attention. They it's really, really do. Best uh, listeners. It's lovely. Yasmin asked me to go on last week to talk about, because she had been listening to the our last episode, and she wanted to pursue the sort of disagreement that Joyce and I were having about, Joyce, mm-hmm. Barbara, and I were having about whether Garland went far enough. So, I mean, people are mm-hmm. really paying attention. They do.